Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I'm your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live and work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings County. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 10th episode is Ann Ball Esquire, who represents clients on Long Island and New York City in serious injury cases, as well as in cases of nursing home abuse and neglect. Anne tells us what we should and should not do if we're involved in a car accident or if we or a loved one is residing in a nursing home. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Anne's credentials and contact information. Please keep in mind we will not be providing any legal advice to specific questions. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So let's get right into it. What are three tips you would give our listeners who are involved in a motor vehicle accident and may be injured? The very first thing is you need to call the police. Even if you think the liability situation is straightforward, I've seen many cases where even on a hit in the rear, the other driver claims that you backed into them. You'd be surprised how often that actually happens. So when there's a police report, a lot gets sorted at the scene. The second thing is get medical attention. Don't wait. If you think that you're injured, make sure that you tell the police they will have an ambulance uh, come for you. And then the third thing, if you can do it, is try to get pictures at the scene. It removes a great many items of doubt that tend to arise later on where disputes sometimes come up concerning the points of impact or where the crash happened. And that can be crucial later on because by the time we get involved as lawyers, it's happened already and it's your word against theirs, and the plaintiff, the proponent, or the claimant has the burden of proof. And what that means is that you have to show that it's more likely than not than that everything happened the way that you said it does. And if the other driver does not have insurance, am I correct that New York is a no-fault insurance state? Yes, New York is a no-fault insurance state and that's true whether or not the other individual is insured. What that means is that your medical bills and lost wage expenses are paid through your own insurance policy. If the other driver is uninsured, however, everyone in New York State has what's called a supplemental uninsured underinsured provision on his or her policy. So if that other driver is uninsured, your policy would then come in up to the limits that you have. Now I would say purchase the maximum limit that you possibly can on the SUM, S-U-M slash U-I-M provision, which is the supplemental uninsured, underinsured provision, because it's very inexpensive and they don't, they don't tell you about it. They, meaning the insurance carrier or the agent, does not normally mention it to you, but it is invaluable if you get involved in an accident with somebody who is either uninsured or underinsured. Why wouldn't the insurance agent tell the insured about that that part of the insurance? Because the risk is unlimited for a very inexpensive policy because you don't know who the other driver is going to be and you're paying a very inexpensive premium and the risk is straight up 
with no very little recompense for the insurance carrier. So they're really, frankly, in my opinion, not interested in, in selling the coverage. Interesting. And what is the amount for the policy, the policy limit that you're recommending? Well, they will never sell you more than you have for your own limits. So if your carrier will sell you up to your own bodily injury limits, purchase it. And you should always take the opportunity then to re-examine your own bodily injury limits because people don't think that they're going to get involved in, in a crash, but the fact is is that sooner or later they frequently do, and you don't want to be caught with an inadequate amount of coverage for yourself because anybody could make a claim against you, proving it is another matter, but still, you, you need to be protected. So this works even if you are not at fault, if someone else hit you, oh. this insurance coverage covers you, correct? Oh, absolutely. It certainly does. And then worst case scenario where you are struck, for example, as a pedestrian and maybe you don't have your own policy, then the uh, New York State MVAC Motor Vehicle Accident Indemnification Corporation comes in, but they are the absolute last resort. If there's no other insurance anyplace else, they come in on it. What about writing down the other driver's name, contact information, and insurance company? Is that just passe now because the license plate will tell the police all of that information? If the police are called, then you don't need to do it. However, many times, especially in the boroughs, the wait time for a, a police car to respond is lengthy and the people can't or won't wait and sometimes it's not safe to do so depending on where you are so in that case absolutely you should get as much information as you possibly can license plate name address and the insurance information if they and if they will give it to you their policy number when the police do come what do you tell the police or refrain from saying to them well they'll ask you what happened and you tell them I was stopped and hit in the rear for example or I was waiting to make a left turn and I, and I was struck. Honesty is always the best policy. What if you think that you're okay at the time of the accident but only realize afterwards that you may be injured? Oh, that happens all the time. There's uh, so much adrenaline and emotion running at the scene that many people don't realize that they're hurt. As soon as you realize that you do, Go to a hospital and get checked out or go to see your primary care physician. Why is it important to see an attorney, personal injury attorney, fairly quickly after the accident occurs? Because you'll be contacted normally by the other person's insurance carrier. They will, some of them are, are really very aggressive in reaching out to the uh, injured party and many of them try to get you to sign a release for very little money. And I've had that happen where someone came into the office and we sent a letter of representation and the carrier contacted me and said, well, that's all fine, but your client has signed a release. And sure enough, they send it to me and that's it. And I have to call them and say, I can't help you. So now let's switch to the issue of nursing home abuse. How prevalent is it and how does it manifest? Sadly, it's become more and more common. Years ago, I started defending nursing home um, 
litigation cases for the adult children of residents who were sued on their parents' nursing home bill. Absolutely defensible most of the time, by the way. By the way, can I stop for a second? Are sure. you talking about family members of the resident who are sued for non-payment of the bill? Yes, indeed. So why would a nursing home or other facility be able to sue the family members as opposed to the actual uh, patient? Well, by the time the resident is in a nursing home, they're frequently judgment-proof because they're on Medicaid. So whatever assets they had are, are beyond the reach or don't exist any longer. So if an adult child signs, for example, as power of attorney, or as designated beneficiary, the nursing home wants to get paid, and my experience is they will try to sue whoever it can. So when these cases first started coming into my office, I, I would ask the individual, how is your loved one being treated? And the answer was always, good. In recent years, sadly, they're coming in with horror stories, mostly manifesting themselves as, as very severe bed sores, and in some cases, instances of abuse. It's very distressing. Before we go on to the abuse, I want to go back to the liability of the family member for the patient's bills. Is it correct that family members, even spouses, are not responsible for the patient's bills, or is that incorrect? Well, the spouse is always responsible for the other spouse's bills unless uh, certain steps are taken to avoid that responsibility, which I think is beyond the scope of our discussion today. Although uh, if anyone has questions, they can certainly call you to discuss that, correct? Absolutely. The children are, and others are not, are not responsible. However, they try to get around that in two ways. Number one, if there's a power of attorney, and number two, if they sign as designated beneficiaries. And the theory is, that either A, they uh, diverted the resident's funds to their own use, B, the resident had funds and they didn't pay the nursing home, or C, they made transfers to make the resident uh, judgment-proof or insolvent. So they will try to get money out of the individual that way. So it sounds like it would behoove a family member thinking of bringing a, a parent or other family member to a nursing home to first meet with an attorney to decide how to present the, this case. Well, yes, the first thing that they should do is uh, meet with an elder law attorney to plan and do Medicaid planning. That That's not something that, that I do. Uh, I get involved after everything has gone wrong. Right, I do that. <laughs> yes, you do, indeed. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the nursing home abuse issues. What are some of the symptoms we're looking for in addition to bed sores? Bed sores is the most common thing. The other thing is, is that if you when you go to visit a loved one, there are bruises there that they can't explain, cuts that they can't explain, rashes, general slovenliness in, in appearance. The, uh, the problem is, is that many times the, the resident is confused and is unable to tell the family member what, if anything, happened. And this is worse in the dementia units. So it seemed that there is a great burden upon the family to really watch how the loved one is being treated in the nursing home. Does it matter to the nursing home staff? Are they more aware of ensuring better treatment for someone who does have family around them? 
Well, I think so. But the, the problem is I have this one, for example, this one case where this woman was visiting her father almost every single day. And it, it turned out that this resident who did in fact pass on had developed the bed sore on his behind. And uh, the brother also went to visit the father. But when questioned at an examination before trial, the woman said, well, I wasn't in the habit of looking at my father's behind, so I had no idea that he had a bed sore. Yes, I, I think that would be trying. So our first weekly segment is called What's on Your Desk? about an issue or challenge facing one of your clients, specifically concerning a legal rule or statute. So Anne, what's on your desk? There are piles on my desk, <laughs> but one of, the, one of the main thing that's on my desk is um, a book that I'm writing about a case that I handled out of something that happened right here on Long Island, Queens to be precise, which is part of Long Island. Do you want to tell us about the book? Yes, this is a book uh, involving something that happened with, with a family member, and um, the best way to explain it is to um, perhaps read the a little intro overview about what the book is about. And it is as follows. Um, I never thought I would use my attorney ID to see my own son in a New York City lockup, but here I am on the edge of a metal chair in the fishbowl that is a lawyer-client conference booth. I rise when he appears and our hands meet, pressed together against the glass, the first moments, wordless. I breathe with relief. He is not hurt. He has his composure. I hope you know I didn't do this, Mom. Of course not, son. I have no doubt. We sit. The charged papers pass between us through the narrow opening, our heads together. Who is this woman? Why would she accuse him of these terrible things? Why didn't they give him his phone call? Why no warrant? In time, there would be answers to some of these questions, but right here, right now, there was the arraignment, and the important thing was that he walk out of here with me. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Do you have a working title for your book? Yes. It's, um, the working title is Bridge Over Troubled Waters, The True Story of a Mother's Love in a Lawyer's World. So do you have a teachable moment for clients, especially if they're facing injury or other problems after a motor vehicle accident? Yes. The teachable moment is to make sure that you notify your, your own carrier in addition to the other things that we talked about earlier, make sure you notify your own insurance company right away, even though it's not your fault, because you're going to need a no-fault application so that you can get your medical treatment. And uh, make sure that you take pictures if you can, because uh, even though things seem to be straightforward at the scene of, of a crash, it's not so straightforward in the days following. Okay, and you and I had also discussed the importance of telling the emergency room staff or subsequent doctors about your physical complaints. Oh, that is, that is of critical importance. I'm glad that you brought that up because what happens is if you don't complain about everything to all your doctors, then the insurance carrier, and I'm talking about your own insurance carrier, the no-fault company now, will sometimes question causation that if the complaint is not made, they will try to say frequently, it's not from the accident, it's from something else, and you're looking to pin it on that. And I, I've had that problem come up recently where the individual didn't report to any doctor concerning what she was complaining about, 
arguing, well, I already had an appointment with the hand surgeon, so why should I mention it to anybody else? Well, the no-fault insurance carrier took, took issue with it because this woman had had a prior fracture at that location, and they were trying to pin it on that. So... So is the argument there that the injury was not caused by this particular accident, but by a prior incident? Yes. So on the flip side, Anne, I find it's not always a good idea to report health issues in the estate planning realm, and here's the rub. I recommend to many of my estate planning clients that they consider applying for long-term care insurance. The insurance companies require that an applicant's physicians provide copies of office and treating notes which sometimes disclose illnesses or conditions which prevent the applicant from qualifying for insurance. So it seems to me that a patient has to be careful what he or she reports, keeping in mind that all doctor's records will be available to insurance companies in the future. What do you see in terms of insurance companies' responses to clients who have pre-existing health conditions? We, we just discussed this issue of causation. Do you find that insurance companies try to disclaim coverage? Well, it's not that they always disclaim coverage. It's just that they try to say that the injury was primarily caused by a prior event or prior illness and their responsibility to compensate the injured party has been reduced by the percentage that they claim. But there's ways there's ways around it. You have to be able to document your medicals. As a lawyer, you have to understand the medicine. Bottom line, you have to understand the medicine. And it sounds like there's a comparative issue of, of injury, meaning even if you had a pre-existing condition that would not uh, disqualify you from a, a lawsuit uh, based upon the injury, there just may be an issue as to how much was caused or what percentage you would be entitled to remedy. Absolutely. Just because somebody had a prior injury um, and then has a subsequent crash where the area is re-injured and it's, and it's aggravated or exacerbated is not an issue um, in terms of getting non-suited, but it, it does factor into the ultimate valuation of it. And that's a medical question as to how much that area has been affected. So now we're moving on to a weekly segment called Only on Long Island, in which we discuss interesting developments here on the island. And what is your Only on Long Island comment? Not exclusive to Long Island, but very important to it and the rest of the state is the fact that we can now subpoena trial records to our office. Previously, we would have to issue subpoenas and have the medical records or whatever it was we were subpoenaing returnable to the courthouse, which you ha then you have to go over there and look at it. Now you can have it subpoenaed to the office and it's a big time sake. So my comment is about the Nassau County Board of Elections announcement that 15 Nassau locations will be used as early voting sites before the general election on November 5th, 2019. The proposal approved by New York State was authored by Charles Levine, a Democrat from Glen Cove who serves as chairman of the Assembly's Election Law Committee. Uh, under this new law, all New York state counties are required to allow New Yorkers to vote in person up to nine days before an election at no fewer than seven sites per county open for at least 60 hours. This early voting system will cost $17 million to implement, in addition to another $27 million for electronic poll books and scanning devices to print ballots for people who live in different election districts. In 2018, New York State ranked 41st out of 50 states in voter turnout. 
only 57% of all eligible voters voted. A survey showed that 79% of all voters indicated they would be more likely to vote if they could vote early. A link to a full list of early voting sites and hours of operation is included in the show notes. Thank you, Anne. That's it for our 10th episode. We appreciate your coming on the podcast. Listeners, be sure to look at the show notes for Anne's contact information. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I was on my way to surf at Third Beach in Mattituck when I heard on the LI Law podcast that sharks were seen in about four feet of water just a few yards offshore. Thanks for the warning. The LI Law Podcast cannot protect you from the sharks in the water, but we can inform you about everything Long Island. We are your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.